You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org. Hey, uh, just yesterday we had a great opportunity. We opened up our campus. How many of you guys were here for that? Raise your hand. Man, we had over a thousand people on our campus. I bet 90% of that was people from the community. So I just want to thank you for all of you who give and serve at any level at all to help make that possible that we can show the love of Jesus Christ to the North Valley. It was an incredible event. Let's celebrate that for a moment. Well, today is Commitment Day, and so you probably received one of those yellow cards. If somebody would just hold it up so I can see that we've got it in your hand. Did you get it? There you go. Okay. If you didn't grab one of those, you want to grab them at the back over there. At the end of my message today, we're going to have a time where you can come forward and place your commitment in these little offering baskets we've got up here. Um, So you can go ahead and fill that out if you haven't already done so. We've got a lot of families that have already given their advanced commitments, a one-time gift and a three-year pledge. And uh, so the good news is, guys, for our victory goal, $650,000 to help renovate that building and then to improve our campus, our, our parking lots and all that stuff, pretty dusty out there, right? So we can fix that, ladies and gentlemen. We can fix that. Um, It just takes resources, financial resources. So what I want to encourage you to do is fill that out during my message today, and then uh, at the end of my message, I'll invite everybody to come forward and do that. Those of you that have already made your advanced commitment and you turned in your gift early, I would just say if you want to just fill it out and say already did it, but come down as an act of worship, like this is a sacred moment for our church. This is what this is. So I want to encourage you to be able to do that uh, after my message today. Um, so anyway, I'm excited. Uh, today is going to be a special day. Um, this is going to be a, a historical marker for us and w- pray with me that we can hit our goal um, so that we can continue to build up this church in the ministries of this church uh, for the glory and the fame of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your church. It's a great privilege to serve under you and uh, Today, we ask for you to do a miracle, not just a victory, but a miracle uh, through this church, that we would be able to provide the needed resources to build up the ministries and expand the mission scope of what we can do in and through this church. We thank you for the great group of people that you have provided us to partner with for your kingdom come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, everybody said... Amen. Okay, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're in Luke uh, chapter 22. Um, for those of you that are new, um, you, we've got an out programs. So you can be an outline maker and a note taker uh, if you'd like to do that. Um, today's message is titled, uh, The Idea of the Best Place in Life to Be is Living in God's Will. The Best Place in Life to Be. Let me tell you some places that you're uncomfortable to be. Just the other day, I was in Wickenburg on a little excursion for the day and uh, was out of my comfort zone and walked into McDonald's and, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, I find myself in a restroom where there's no urinals on the wall. And then I see a lady standing over there and I panic for a moment and I say to her, I don't know why I say this, I said, can I use the restroom in here? And she goes, it's the women's restroom. What are you doing? And I was like, oh my goodness. And I ran out of the, there and I was in there with the men on the men's side. And I was like, man, I just walked into the ladies' restroom. And they were like, yeah, we've done it before too, buddy. Uh, it was so funny. Um, 
I don't know. I have a, uh, I've been in the wrong place many times. And uh, I was at McDonald's a few months ago. I don't know why McDonald's is getting in my message today, but uh, I was in McDonald's the other day, uh, a ways away, and I, was, I had Toy- Toyota Tacomas on my mind. Because my, my wife and I had a plan that I was going to sell the Honda Pilot and, or, or hold it and sell it to the kids. And uh, I was going to get a Toyota Tacoma. And then this resource initiative came and that kind of ruined my plans for that Toyota. Um, because we, you know, we don't have a bunch of extra income and we don't have more land to sell. So we got to cut somewhere. And so say, okay, we'll delay that purchase. But I had Toyota Tacoma on my mind. Walked into McDonald's. <laughs> And the guy says to me, hey, sir, uh, what can I get for you today? I said, I'll have one Toyota Tacoma, please. <laughs> and I was like, I mean, uh, and he said, we don't make those. <laughs> uh, sometimes in life, you can find yourself, you're in the wrong place. Um, on a more se- serious note, whenever you're not in, in a good place, emotionally, spiritually, physically, it's just not a good experience. You, you just feel way, you're like, it's a dark cloud that's set over the soul in a season and you're kind of asking God, is there any way this can lift fast? And what we see in the life of Jesus is that he is in a dark cloud. Um, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Read with me, if you will, Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 46. And this is after the, the Lord's, the Last Supper. And uh, he's with his disciples, makes about a 15-minute walk to one of his favorite places. And it's probably 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And in verse 39, he says, And he came out and went, as was custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Jesus was breaking away to get away. He knew the cross was coming. It's very interesting. He goes to the garden right before he, he's, going to be, he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He's... He's going to be um, arrested, falsely arrested, falsely accused. He's going to be abandoned. He goes to the garden, and he's going to overcome this temptation to skirt the cross, and he's going to endure the cross. And it's interesting, in the biblical account of Genesis, it all started in a garden. You have Adam in, in the garden, and he falls into temptation. And in the garden, we see Jesus. We're going to see Jesus. He goes to the garden. He's going to overcome temptation. Verse 40, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He's challenging them not to fall into temptation. What is the temptation that these disciples would have? Well, if they're going to desert him. Peter is going to deny him. Just read a little further in the... uh, Uh, Luke's account in the Gospels, Peter's going to deny him how many times? Three times. And he calls them to pray, uh, and the disciples are a little concerned because their hero, Jesus, is now incredibly controversial, and they're experiencing so much emotional pain and and question is, is Jesus really the Messiah who's going to overcome the corruption of Rome? Will he vindicate us from the religious uh, corruption as well. And they're in big question. And Jesus is talking about death. He did the Lord's Supper, and that's where they took communion. And he talked about his death. But he didn't only talk about his death, ladies and gentlemen. He talked about his resurrection too. And so the disciples are confused, and Jesus calls them to pray. 
And this prayer is a prayer for dependence. My question for you is when you get into a tough place, will you go into a place of prayer? His disciples followed him into this place and he calls them to pray. What would their temptation be? It would be to abandon him, to, to not acknowledge him. And Jesus calls them to pray and not, it, not to enter into temptation. Verse 41, and it says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and then he knelt down and prayed. This is where we get the whole idea of kneeling for prayer. Some of you come from Episcopal backgrounds or Catholic backgrounds, and kneeling to pray is a very routine habit in which you would do. And Jesus kneels down and he prays. For me, when I'm praying, oftentimes one of the first things I like to do when I wake up in the morning is get down on my knees right away and pray. And that's a posture of humility. And if I bent down right now, you would see my balding head and you might laugh, so I'm not going to do that. So I'll just stay, stay, stand tall. I went to my barber the other day and I said, how's it looking on top? And she patted me on the shoulder and she goes, stand tall, young man, stand tall. I was like, that was very classy for you to say that. Stand tall, stand tall. <laughs> These barbershops, they're a great group of uh, Jewish Orthodox Russians. They're wonderful people. I love those guys. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry. Got off track here. <laughs> so, and he withdrew from them a stone's throw away, and then he knelt down and prayed. Why, why do that? It's a sign of submission that God is sovereign, and Jesus wants to fulfill the Father's will. So he kneels down and prays, but look at the prayer the most powerful prayer, the most important prayer I believe that you could have in your life to find yourself in God's will doing what God wants to do. He says to the Father, if you're willing to remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew that that cup signified the specific death that he would suffer. He would go to the cross. Jesus was omniscient. That means he knows everything. So when he knelt down and when he closed his eyes, he could see everything. Nothing was hidden from him. He knew the Father's will. It was predicted from the prophet Isaiah. This was the suffering servant, Jesus. This was long foretold. It's not newsflash for Jesus. He sees it all. What's he afraid of? He's afraid of the brutality of the cross. But even much more. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I find it interesting that God commands, commanded this angel in Jesus' great time of need. He provides a supernatural, extraordinary encouragement to Jesus to overcome temptation, to walk through the pain and the suffering that he's about to experience. Luke is the historian and the physician who records the details of Jesus. And look how he portrays the pain that Jesus goes through in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat become like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There's a medical term, term for this under great levels of incredible stress emotionally, spiritually, or physically, this medical term is hematidrosis. It's really like, it's, where it's called blood sweat, another easy phrase to remember. But it is literally, he was going through three different forms of agony or pain. You might want to write these down. The first is the spiritual agony. He would be suffering from an incredible loss of fellowship or 
rupture in the relationship with God the Father at some level or another by taking upon himself. It's a great mystery. Commentators, scholars all debate about it. But there's some sense of a spiritual agony that he's experiencing by taking upon himself all the sins of the world. And that's what Jesus says he did, is that he, the Bible affirms that, he took upon himself all the sins of humanity, and he suffered in our place so that we didn't have to. He paid the price that only he could pay. There was a spiritual agony, but there was also an emotional agony. He had friends that he, would, he did life with, that he called into ministry with. Peter, James, and John would be some of his closest friends, and they would deny him. They would abandon him. They would desert him and act like they didn't know him. This would be incredible levels of emotional pain. But then there was the physical agony as well. Jesus, when he was in the garden, closed his eyes and he saw that he would be soon betrayed by Judas. He would be falsely arrested and accused. He would be later that night been walked around maybe two and a half, three miles, chained like an animal as a criminal and be brought into all these false trials in these corrupt groups between uh, religious leaders that would falsely accuse him and condemn him to death. He would the next day be tied up to a stake, chained, and the Roman soldiers would take a cat of nine tails, a leather whip that would have leather uh, braids that would have fish bones and metal balls in it, ball bearing like things. And the, and the fish bones would be intended to lacerate the back of his legs, lacerate his back over and over until he would bleed out incredibly. In fact, when they filmed the movie, The Passion of the Christ, the main guy that plays Jesus in that, somehow in one of those scenes when he's being whipped, there was a leather strand that came off of a shield guard and put a 14-inch lash on the guy's back, and he passed out on the filming of the project with one whip of, a, of one of those leather uh, braids. Jesus was whipped from head to toe, front and back, side to side. It was an unusual level of scourging that Jesus would receive. The ball bearings were intended to create contusions and bruises and internal bleeding. And our Lord was not only was he suffering from the spiritual agony, not only from the emotional agony, but he foresaw and he knew and he saw all of the beating that he would receive. Isaiah prophesied it and said stuff like this. The prophet Isaiah said that he would hardly be recognizable. So, so when you watch in sober-mindedness the passion of the Christ, I was there when they first aired it in a movie theater. We all walked out of there with this kind of quiet, holy awe, like this was too much to see. It was controversial, to say the least, what was captured on film. Jesus suffered the physical agony. He saw that, and then he would not only be that, but he would be whipped, and then they would be, take a crown of thorns, and they would mash it down on his head and hail him as king and mock him and spit in his face and blindfold him and punch him. And then they would take him and stretch him out the most hellish form of capital punishment and stretch his arms out after being dehydrated, his skin being ultra-sensitive, from the hematidrosis. 
they would stretch his body out and then nail down steel spikes into his hands and into his feet and then prop him up for all to look. Jesus saw all that. He saw it all. And what was his attitude? His attitude was, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's powerful. That's the right posture for us, no matter what we're going through, no matter how hard of a situation we find ourselves in. Could we come to that Garden of Gethsemane place to say, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, in verse 45, he rose from prayer and he came to the disciples and what does he see? He's, they were sleeping for sorrow. Jesus is very prepared to go to the cross. The disciples are not. That's typically how we operate. We're not very prepared a lot of times. Jesus always is. Then he goes from there and he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus was abandoned. He was suffering from emotional agony. His, his closest, his nearest and dearest friends wouldn't even stay and, and wait and pray. So I asked the question as I looked at this text this week, is the best place in life to be is always in God's will, no matter how hard or hellish it may be, no matter how difficult or dangerous it may be, we always want to know, are we living in God's will? Three steps to help you live in God's will every single day of your life. Number one, you need to desire God's will more than your own. That's what Jesus did. He said, not my will, but your will be done. There was a, uh, a book I wanted to recommend for some of you guys um, and gals that are in business or just want to learn how to balance your life. The guy's name is Terry Looper. He's the CEO and founder of Texon and the author of a book called Sacred Pace. And he puts it like this, demanding our way is always a greater risk than letting God have his way. Let me read that again. It's there on your program. I'll put it up on the screen. But demanding our way is always a greater risk than letting God have his way. What did Jesus do? Jesus, in a sense, he put it into neutral. He said, if there's a way you can remove this from me, the pain, the challenge that I'm going to face, would you remove it, God? But he comes to a place of neutrality, Terry Looper likes to call it, where you get to neutral in life. And you just say, God, I'm not going to put it into drive and push through this decision, push through this situation. I'm going to put it into neutral. And Lord, if you want to put it in reverse, I'll go in reverse. Lord, if you want to put it in drive, I'll go into drive. Let me ask you a question. What parenting issue are you dealing with? Marriage issue are you dealing with? Business decision you're wrestling with? And then you have the tendency, ladies and gentlemen, to get in the car for, say, put it in a drive, and just start going. And my, my, my caution would be is if Jesus is on the side and saying, I didn't want you to go in that direction. If you would have let me have the keys to drive, that would have been great. Or if you would just put it into neutral, then I can direct you and guide you the way I want you to go. And what does that mean from a biblical standpoint? It means simply that prayer of Gethsemane that Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. Could that be true for you and me? The best place in life you could ever find yourself in is a place where you're in neutral and you say, this is what I want, God, but not my will, yours be done. Amen? That's the best place you can be in life. 
Lord, how do I proceed forward in my schooling? Lord, how do I proceed forward in this relationship? This is what I desire, God, but not my will, yours be done. This is how I want my parenting to look. God, I want to help my kids in this way and this way, but not my will, yours be done. And we look at Jesus. Did he have it easy? No. He still went through the scourging. He still went through the, the mocking. The, he still went through the cross. Jesus is our example. The best place in life to be is always in God's will. Desiring God's will is more than your own. That's how you get to the best place in life. John 15, 7 says, I'll, I'll paraphrase some of the passages that support this idea, though. In, John, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that Jesus is teaching, and he says, in a sense, like, if you abide in a relationship with me, I'll, I'll give you desires, and you can ask whatever you want. Like, how freeing is that? So if I have a friendship with Jesus Christ, and the, Jesus portrays himself as a friend to every believer in Jesus Christ, you have a friend Great counselor, great friend, never going to abandon you, always committed to you. He's in a sense saying, if, if you walk in a relationship with me, you, you get to know me really well. I'll help you with your desires and whatever you desire, you just ask me for. I think you need to approach God like he's just a great, a great friend. He's always willing to help. And so you say to me, well, Really? I could trust my desires? Well, according to Psalm 37, 4, ladies and gentlemen, it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you what? The desires of your heart. So how do you, how do you get into God's will? Well, you desire God's will more than your own, but pay attention to your desires. What do you want? If you're walking and living with, under the authority of the Bible, that's your, that's your authority, not living on top of the, the Bible like this, this is what many people are doing today. You live under the authority of the Bible. You, Jesus cultivates, redeems, restores the heart. The desires of your heart become the seeds for God's destiny for your life. And being in God's will is always better than doing it your way. It's always better. When you delight yourself in the Lord, you spend time with him, you rest under the authority of Scripture, he'll begin to give you the desires of your heart. First step is, is, is that getting into neutral or wanting God's will more than your own. Every decision you make gets to neutral. Every issue that you face gets to neutral and go, God, this is what I want. I've done the research. I've prayed about it. I've thought about it. I've sought counsel on it. But at the end of the day, I want your will on this. And what will happen is, ladies and gentlemen, you'll get a peace of God which transcends all understanding that'll guard your hearts and minds in, in Jesus. That's what will happen. You'll have this peace in your gut and you'll go, oh, I feel good about this. Prayed about it, thought about it. I'm willing to go forward, back, whatever you want to do. Number two, you die to self. You exist to serve another Del Huse said last week and talked about the, the doulos, the slave, or the diakonos, the servant. They exist to serve another. Ryan Rice exists to serve another. Who do I serve? I serve the Lord Jesus Christ and I serve the church. I love God and I love my neighbor. My existence is wrapped around serving another. I'm just trying to carry out the will of the master. That's the goal, ladies and gentlemen. 
We've got to walk with that, live in that, dying to self. It's not an easy thing to do. What is dying to self? Let me read to you some of these phrases from this poem I found. When you're forgotten, neglected, or purposely ignored, and you don't sting and hurt with the insult of the oversight, but your heart is happy being counted worthy to suffer for Christ, that is dying to self. When your good is spoken of as evil, your wishes are crossed, your advice is disregarded, your opinion ridiculed, and you refuse to let anger rise in your heart or even defend yourself, but take it all in patient, loving silence, holding your tongue, that is dying to self. When you lovingly and patiently bear any disorder, irregularity, or any annoyance, when you stand face to face with waste, folly, extravagance, spiritual insensibility, and endure it as Jesus endured, that is dying to self. When you're content with any food or any offering, any climate, any society, any clothing, or any interruption by the will of God, that is dying to self. When you never care to refer to yourself in conversation or to record your own good works or itch after praise, when you can truly love to be unknown, that is dying to self. Bible teaches us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. If we're going to serve like Jesus, we got to be willing to live like Jesus and in a sense suffer like Jesus. But in that, there's great reward. It's very liberating. Last thing I want to encourage you to help you get into a good place in life is do whatever God's calling you to do, to do it with courage and conviction. Apostle Paul told the church in Colossae, he said, hey, whatever you do, do it with all your heart as for working for the Lord, not for men. When you get into a place, when you've truly out a place where, you, Lord, you bless this, you take it, I'm in neutral, you go, you put it in drive, you put it in reverse. Once you've crossed through that, once you can say to yourself, man, I'm really dying to myself here. It's not about me. It's about you, God. It's about serving you and serving other people. Then whatever it is, do it with courage. Do it with conviction. This is the Lord's will. Walk forward in that. For me, I can never move forward with any kind of plan that we have for our church or for my family if I haven't first taken those first two steps. Number one, saying, I can honestly say I want God's will more than anything else in this situation. Or number two, I'm glad to die to myself in this because I know in that you live through it, Lord. It's not about me, it's about you. And then doing it with a level of sense of courage and conviction. And what will happen is, is God will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. So when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, folks, we see Jesus made the greatest commitment to endure the cross, suffer its shame, and to rise in victory and be exalted, the highest name above all other names. In our pathway to greatness, our pathway is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and to hail him as Lord and we as servants. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would make a whole dedication, not just a 40-day stretch, but a whole 40-day dedication, a whole life of serving like you. So we pray, God, even in this time, uh, for us all, just to submit our will to yours in any decision that we've got. And that we truly not just trying to build our kingdom, our purposes, our plans, our ways, but Lord, be guided and directed 
by you. And in that, there is great adventure. There is great blessing. There is great joy awaiting. So we thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing, that you've already done, and that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.